Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, 2 Samuel chapter 21. Well, we're going to pick up today with 2 Samuel chapter 21. And um, we began last week talking about this chapter. And I began by explaining that at some point in David's reign, he dealt with a severe famine. It lasted for three years. And, And let me remind you that chapters 21 through the end of 2 Samuel form a kind of appendix to the book of Samuel that lumps together several bits and and pieces of information about David, about Israel, that the ancient editors of Samuel apparently couldn't find an appropriate place to include in the main body of the book. So we need to understand that what we're studying today did not occur in chronological order right after that short-lived rebellion led by Sheva as we read about in chapter 20. Now let me also recall for you that especially as concerns this famine and this narrative about the execution of seven members of Saul's household as a sort of solution to to the drought that, that caused this famine It is that the proceedings and the decisions by David and by the Gibeonites were a deadly and a dubious mixture of Torah law, Middle Eastern customs, and pagan beliefs. And I've mentioned in lessons past that by the time of David, knowledge of the Torah was already on the decline in Israel. The priesthood was fractured and hobbling along, ineffective, underfunded. It it barely mattered. Saul had decimated the priesthood at Nob. And David maintained two high priests as a matter of political expediency. It was the priesthood that was charged with the teaching of the people of Israel, the Torah. It wasn't happening. And since the time of Saul, Israel's first king, attention had steadily moved away from the high priest as Israel's moral authority and towards the king and his government. It might be too strong to say that the priesthood by now was only a figurehead organization, but it's apparent that rather than the king taking his cue from the priesthood, which is how it was supposed to be, The priesthood now took their marching orders from the king. Thus, a few centuries later, the Bible reports the story of Josiah, who discovered a copy of the Torah, something that had become virtually obsolete in Israel, and after reading it, realized how far away Israel was from God and from His commandments and from the way of life that Israel was supposed to be living. So King Josiah instituted radical reforms throughout his kingdom to try and restore the rule of God's law before God acted in his destructive wrath. And I tell you this because while that wasn't quite the case yet in David's day, the slide down that slippery slope 
of man-made ordinances, substituting for and overriding in some cases God's commandments, and of course claiming that these ordinances were in accordance with Scripture, all right, was well underway. And that's why we see this sickening scenario presented to us in this story of the famine and of the Gibeonites' revenge. Now, although we read it last week, this is a fascinating story. And we're going to reread it so we have it fresh in our minds to examine today. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21, page 358 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. In David's time, there was a famine that lasted three years, and David consulted Adonai. And Adonai said, It's because of Saul and his blood-stained house, because he put to death the people of Gibeon. And the king summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, These Gibeonites were not part of the people of Israel, but from the remnant of the Amorites. And the people of Israel had sworn to them, but Saul and his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah had sought to exterminate them. And David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? With what should I make atonement so that you'll be able to bless Adonai's heritage? And the Gibeonites said to him, Our dispute with Saul can't be resolved with silver or gold, and we don't have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. And he said, so what do you say that I should do for you? And they answered the king, the man who ruined us, who schemed against us so that we would cease to exist anywhere in Israel's territory, have seven of his male descendants handed over to us. We'll put them to death by hanging before Adonai in Gibeah of Saul, whom Adonai chose. And the king said, I'll hand them over. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shaul, because of the oath before Adonai between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mechlati and handed them over to the Gibeonites who hanged them on the hill before Adonai. All seven died. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest season at the beginning of the barley harvest. Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth, spread it out towards a, a cliff for herself, and stayed there from the beginning of the harvest until water was poured out on the bodies from the sky, not letting the birds land on them during the day or the wild animals at night. David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done. So David went and took the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Yavesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them at the time the Philistines had killed Saul at Gilboa. And he brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son. They also gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. Then they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the territory of Benjamin in Selah in the tomb of Kish his father. 
They did everything the king ordered. Only after that was God prevailed on to show mercy to the land. Once again the Philistines made war on Israel. David went down with his servants and fought against the Philistines, but David began to get tired. And Yishbi Benalf, one of the sons of the giant, said that he'd killed David. His spear weighed seven pounds. He was wearing new armor. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to David's rescue by striking the Philistine and killing him. Then David's men swore to him, You must no longer go out with us to battle in order not to quench the lamp of Israel. And a while after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gov. Sibkai the uh, Hushati killed Saf, one of the sons of the giant. There was more war with the Philistines at Gov. And Elchanan, the son of uh, Arei or Gim, the Beit Lachmi, killed Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's beam. There was again war at Gath, where there was a belligerent man with six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. And he too was the son of a giant. When he mocked Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemad, David's brother, killed him. These four were the sons of the giant in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his servants. The key to this story is that when David consults God about the cause of the famine, this three-year drought, the Lord says that it's because of Saul and his household and it centers on blood guilt committed by the house of Saul. And this is due to Saul and his household putting certain people of the city of Gibeon to death unjustly. Now we're also given the information that these particular Gibeonites were Amorites, not Israelites. And that part of the problem was that the Israelites had long ago sworn a peace treaty with these Amorites and had now violated that treaty. Last week we looked back to the days of Joshua when the ancestors of this population of Amorites at Gibeon deceived Joshua into believing that they lived far away in a land outside of Canaan. They feared Israel. And so they came to Joshua wanting to avoid war. But in reality, living in Canaan, they were subject to God's instructions to Moses that all the Canaanite tribes were to be driven from the land or exterminated if they refused to go. Well, Joshua and Israel's elders were foolish and they did not consult Jehovah about this matter. Instead, they rashly entered into a peace treaty invoking Jehovah's name as the guarantor of, the cov- of this covenant of peace. Thus, when Joshua found out that the Amorites had lied and were in fact people who lived in Canaan, it was too late. Well, nearly four centuries has passed. Saul became king of Israel. The descendants of these Amorites were apparently still living peacefully among the Israelites in in the Benjamite city of Gibeon. But but get the picture. As an illustration of the substantial amount of time that has passed, the timing would equate to the Amorites 
making a treaty with the pilgrims who came ashore at Plymouth Rock in the early 1600s and now in the year 2011 after many generations have come and gone these Amorite descendants who have maintained a separate Amorite identity are suddenly regarded as an enemy by Saul and many of them are killed simply because of their heritage it's clear from the story that the Amorites were victims they hadn't rebelled they hadn't created any kind of disturbance that needed to be put down Rather, we're only told that it was Saul's zeal for the people of Israel and Judah that he had them massacred. Now, there are various scholarly opinions on just what Shaul's zeal for the people meant. Some rabbis think that because these Amorites of Gibeon had become the suppliers of wood for the tabernacle altar fire, and water carriers for the vast amounts of water that would be used for purification rites at the sanctuary of Jehovah, that they had become dependent on the sanctuary and the priesthood for their livelihood, just as had the Levites. So when Saul slaughtered the priesthood at Nob, some of the Amorites were also killed. And so now bad blood existed between the Amorites and the house of Saul, not only because of the deaths, but because the Amorites lost their expected source of sustenance. But the more plain meaning of the text, and the lack of any history to explain any bad blood, was that the carnal and devious Saul was probably thinking that he could get back into the people's and onto God's good side by coming against the pagan Amorites of Gibeah in a public demonstration of concern for God and country. You know, it's usual and customary with pragmatic politicians of every form of government and in every era to pick a fight with some currently unpopular group as a means of showing their unity and their sympathy with their constituents. Scholars such as Alfred Edersheim agree with this is the probable cause of Saul's genocidal actions against these Amorites. Well, thus Saul wreaked havoc among these particular Gibeonites of Amorite descent killing many and thus greatly weakening their ethnic community. Now our story says his intent was actually complete extermination of them, but he failed. And while the creation of blood guilt upon the land from this unjustifiable mass homicide was one result, the worst part of it was that it happened as a direct violation of an oath in which the God of Israel was the guarantor. Joshua's oath still held. Saul knew about it, and he blatantly violated it. God's holiness was now tarnished, and his holy land smeared with the blood of uh, not so much innocence, but rather of those who were protected by an oath bearing God's holy name. Well, David, now understanding the 
source of the problem for the drought, calls for some of the surviving Amorites from Gibeon to come before him so that he could try and mitigate their complaint, which God has just made clear is a just complaint. And this is where things start to become very convoluted in this story. Because all Jehovah has said to David is that the cause of the famine is blood guilt upon Saul's household. No precise remedy was, or, was ordained. Whatever follows is devised between a king who seems to have precious little knowledge of the law and these pagan Amorites. Now let me interject another important feature as we move along. Indeed, these Amorites were pagans. They were not Israelite citizens, but rather permanent resident aliens. We know this because they retained their Amorite identities. A foreigner who becomes a citizen of Israel can only do so by becoming a worshiper of the God of Israel. And a worshiper of the God of Israel at that time became a national Hebrew. Thus there is no such thing as an Amorite Hebrew. You maintain one identity or the other. Okay. Had an Amorite become a Hebrew, he wasn't an Amorite anymore. This also means that even though they continued to worship their own gods, these Amorites of Gibeon had good knowledge of Israel's God and they knew his name. They would have long ago accepted Yehovah as a legitimate God and treated him accordingly. This is why in verse 4, as these Gibeonites stand before David, they say that they have no rights to put anybody to death. This is a reference to the Torah law concerning the rights of the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger. Certain of Saul's household, no doubt led by his sons, had committed this atrocity, but it wasn't upon Hebrews. Had this homicidal attack been upon Hebrew Israelites, then the Torah law allowing blood revenge would have been in effect. And an aggrieved family member could have rightfully hunted down and killed some of the killers. But since these were resident aliens that had been murdered, their families had no such automatic rights. And of course, this was the king's family who had perpetrated this slaughter, so every avenue of blood revenge was closed. Well, probably around 30 to 40 years have passed between the time of this mass murder and when this famine is occurring. Saul is dead, as are his sons, who would have been the prime participants and leaders in this infamous attack. No doubt some more youthful members of the king's family also participated. Several were still likely alive now. But most of his living descendants weren't even born at the time of this atrocity, and some would have been very young children, such as Mephibosheth. Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. Thus in verse 3, David wants to know what he can do for the Gibeonites to essentially forgive Israel 
of this terrible act of 30 to 40 years ago. And enable them to stop being bitter towards Israel and instead, he says, to start to bless them. That's what's meant by David asking what it would take for the Amorites to be able to bless God's heritage. God's heritage is Israel. What would the blessing be? It would be that the Amorites would petition God, presumably in prayer, to forgive Israel for their blood guilt. Now take note, David is well off the mark in asking such a thing from these Gibeonites. It is just fraught with all sorts of superstitions and humanistic and cultural ideas. It's not the way God asks us to proceed. And not surprisingly, these Gibeonites say that their blood vengeance will be satisfied if David will turn over to them seven of Saul's descendants at random for execution. It's also noteworthy that these Amorites, and please observe that I'm switching back and forth between calling these men Gibeonites and Amorites because most biblical texts do the same thing. Anyway, they told David that they would execute these seven men and hang them before or unto Jehovah. And this is because Saul had been chosen by Jehovah. Now what this means is that in Gibeon there was some kind of Bema, a high place that served as a sacred worship site dedicated to the God of Israel. And even though this was expressly against the Torah, the scriptures tell us that many of these unauthorized places existed in Israel. And a number of them, by the way, have been discovered by archaeologists. So the idea was that these seven members of the tribe of Benjamin who were descendants of Saul would be executed and hung at this sacred place. Why hang them there? Because Jehovah was Saul's God. And David made it clear that this same God was angry and he was causing the drought. And so the Amorites would then present these corpses to Saul's God in this sacred place as proof of proper atonement for the blood guilt. Now let me say again, what we have here is straightforward Bible history, not God's instructions. This is merely something that happened. Okay? And we are given some of the thought processes of some of the men involved. So we have no need to apologize for God who didn't direct this procedure. Well, now the Gibeonites' goal was to do to the remaining house of Saul what Saul had intended to do with the Gibeonites. Exterminate them. But David was not about to allow the extinction of all of Saul's relatives and one of the people who he refused to include among those who would be sacrificed was Mephibosheth. David's reason for this was because he had made an oath with Jehovah as the guarantor that he would be kind to Jonathan's offspring. 
David has been living out what happens when a vow invoking the divine name of the Creator is intentionally broken. This three-year famine. So he was not about to turn Mephibosheth over to them and risk more confrontation with God. Verse 8 makes it clear that the king himself decided upon who would be turned over to the Amorites for execution. And first on the list was two sons of Ritzpah, a concubine of King Saul's. Ritzpah was now part of David's harem, as the previous king's harem was always inherited by the new king. Now, Ritzpah was a most revered woman, and in an act that will become famous and spoken of with the greatest admiration right up to our day, she proved that she was of the highest courage and merit. We're going to get to that shortly. One of her sons was Armoni. The other, Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth than Jonathan's son. Okay. And then we are told that the other five who were marked for death were born to Michal, daughter of Saul. This is a bad translation and is probably the result of a copyist error. This is not David's wife, Michal, daughter of Saul. This is rather Merav, eldest daughter of Saul. And this is verified, by the way, biblically in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that explains, Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merav. I will give her to you as your wife. Only continue displaying your courage for me and fight Adonai's battles. And Saul was thinking, I don't dare touch him, so let the Philistines do away with him. David's response to Saul was, Who am I? that I should become the king's son-in-law. I don't have any kind of a life. My father's family has no rank in Israel. However, when it was time for Merav, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was instead given to Adriel the Mecholati as his wife. And of course, the last words of 2 Samuel 21.8 say that this woman was the wife of Adriel the Mecholati. So what we have is two direct sons of Saul still living, proving that even though we are told in other places in scriptures that all the sons of Saul were killed in battle and only Ishbosheth had survived, it was really only referring to those who were highly placed in the monarchy and probably old enough to serve in the military. Those two sons, whose mother was Ritzpah, were undoubtedly small children when the attempt to exterminate the Amorites occurred. And in addition, we have five grandchildren of Saul's through his daughter Merab, and they were all going to lose their lives. And this almost certainly means they weren't even born yet at the time of the killing of these Gibeonites. Now verse 9 gets right to the point. The seven were handed over to the Gibeonites and they were hanged on the hill, the high place, the Bema, dedicated to Jehovah. Understand that while almost every illustration and painting of this gruesome event is of men hanging on crosses, crucified, that is not what happened. 
Okay. Crosses were not in use at this time in the Middle East. Crosses were a much later invention. They actually came from the north. Most scholars credit the invention uh, of execution by means of crucifixion to the Persians around 300 B.C. Rather, to hang means to impale. They didn't use rope to hang criminals by the next. They didn't nail them to crosses in David's day. Rather, the condemned were killed first by stoning or by the sword, and then the dead bodies were impaled on stakes, usually as a warning to others. But even then, the bodies were only displayed for a day. But here, the bodies were literally being presented to the God of Israel almost as a sacrifice. Now let me say again, this was because of men's carnal thoughts. It was nothing that the Lord sought or wanted. And they weren't taken down. Now we're also told something else quite interesting. This presentation of the seven dead corpses before Jehovah was done when? At the beginning of the barley harvest. That ought to ring a bell. The beginning of the barley harvest is officially celebrated by a biblical feast that's called Bikurim, or better, first fruits. That's right. The first fruit celebration that immediately follows the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. I'm not saying with certainty that it happened on first fruits. But the implication of the narrative even mentioning this particular timing must have meaning. And it's quite conceivable, and it fits very well within the context of the story, that in the twisted minds of these pagans who thought themselves to actually be appeasing the God of Israel in what they were doing, that killing these seven men and presenting them on a biblical feast day would be all the more powerful atonement. Ritzpah, the mother of two of the executed men, went to the place of their impalement and she camped out there. She brought sackcloth, the traditional sign of mourning, to use as a ground cover. Her purpose was a most grisly one. She was going to stay near the corpses day and night to shoo away the birds and the jackals from ravaging the dead bodies. Now by Torah law, those bodies should not have stayed exposed beyond nightfall. But the Amorites intended for them to stay there indefinitely. And David turned a blind eye to it all. The meaning of this terrible treatment of the corpses is that in the Middle Eastern culture to deny a person a proper burial not only was an act of deepest disrespect, but it was thought that the person could not enter into an afterlife if the body was not buried generally intact. But there's more. Oddly, we are told that Ritzpah remained there on guard 
until the seasonal rains began. A period from approximately early April to August, according to our modern calendars. What could possibly be the purpose for her doing that? Now recall that this entire unsavory episode began as an inquiry of God by King David and then ended in a hope for remedy to what? A three-year drought. Ritzpah would guard those bodies for all those months while waiting for the sure sign that God has accepted these members of Saul's household as proper atonement for the blood guilt that was upon the land of Canaan. And the sure sign of that acceptance would have been relief from the drought. Rambam, Maimonides, explains that Israel was not culpable for the sin of allowing the bodies to hang exposed for so long because neither David nor the court sanctioned it. David turned over the seven men to the Gibeonites and it was they who committed the desecration of the bodies. Other rabbis fancy other ideas to take any onus off of David because they just can't allow David to ever take on a sin as he is their perfect model for the Messiah. They even go so far as to rationalize matters by saying this, hey, if God allowed it, he must be sanctioning it. And to that I say nonsense. Okay, This is how far leaders from Judaism and at times Christianity will go to uphold a doctrine that's obviously flawed, but it serves their purposes. And we must all be on guard for these kinds of instances. So to Ritzpah, David, and the people of Israel in general, it was thought that now that the rains came, it was because of all that had happened with those seven descendants of Saul. When David heard about what Ritzpah had done, it so impressed him that he ordered that the bones of Saul and Jonathan, along with the bones of those seven men of Saul's household, be gathered together and buried in the tomb of Saul's father, Kish. And the place of burial, Selah, was in Saul's tribal territory of Benjamin. So this was seen as a great kindness on David's part. Now let me insert here that the term the bones of someone is only a general biblical term that refers to the remains of the body. Usually it was bones. Other times it was ashes. All right, As in the case of uh, uh, Saul and Jonathan. Now our story ends with the words that only after this happened was God prevailed on to show mercy to the land. But then all of this leaves us with a burning question. Was the blood guilt on the land paid for by the deaths of these seven men who as far as anything can be ascertained by this story had no part whatsoever in the atrocity of the attack upon the Amorites of Gibeon.
And my answer is, perhaps, but probably not. Now I'm going to tell you immediately that what I'm about to offer you is my opinion and many might reasonably disagree. First, I think that those who take it face value that the blood guilt caused by Saul and his household, the execution of the seven descendants of Saul, and that God thus accepted this atonement for blood guilt are jumping to some conclusions and you're not reading the text very closely. As I said earlier, when David asked what the cause of the drought was, God merely said it was the blood guilt on the land caused by Saul and his household who murdered those Amorites. God did not prescribe the death of those seven men. Nor did he prescribe them to be impaled at some unauthorized cult site that was purported to be dedicated to him. He didn't even suggest that the seven men of Saul's household be turned over to the Amorites. This was all something that David, his court, and the Amorites concocted. Second, all parties had something to gain beyond divine appeasement in the ending of a famine. Much of Saul's family was still living and that represented a very real and ongoing danger to David's monarchy and his dynasty. The reason that new kings sometimes killed the entire family of former kings was not due to unwarranted paranoia. It was that it was almost inevitable that sooner or later some family member or descendant of the ex-king was going to gain a hunger for power. And he was going to want to use his ancestor's former position as proof that he had rights to the throne. Then the new king's life and that of all of his offspring would be in constant danger as the former king's family plotted and planned how they could regain what they figured was always theirs. Third, these Amorites had been living with a bitter hatred of the house of Saul for almost two generations as a result of Saul's unwarranted attempt to commit genocide upon them. But as resident aliens living in Israel, any attempt to get revenge on the house of Saul would not be seen as legal, but rather as foreigners attacking Israelites. And so their blood vengeance couldn't be satisfied. Time did nothing but to allow this hatred to fester. So when David actually gave them a chance for their revenge, they leapt at it. And they performed it in the most horrific, dishonoring, hateful way they could. But as I said a moment ago, it also had the beneficial effect for David of greatly reducing the danger of Saul's family ever again trying to regain the throne. Fourth, the statement at the end of verse 14 that concludes this episode does not say 
that as a result of the seven executions that God accepted this as proper blood atonement and thus the land was cleansed. Rather, it merely says that after all this happened, God was prevailed upon, probably by the priesthood, to show mercy to the land. In other words, the timing of when God accepted Israel's petition for the drought to end was after the bones of Saul, Jonathan, and all seven bodies were properly buried. And this is why many rabbis say that the issue of God hearing Israel's plea and relenting had something to do with Saul and Jonathan not getting a proper burial as opposed to the land being cleansed of blood guilt by the deaths of the seven descendants of Saul. Finally, it has always been a biblical principle that a man is only responsible for his own behavioral sins. Certainly not for the behavioral sins of his dead ancestors. Deuteronomy 24.16 says this, Fathers are not to be executed for their children, nor are children to be executed for their fathers. Every person will be executed only for his own sin. That's Deuteronomy. Yet as I have illustrated for you on a number of occasions, the iniquities of our ancestors can have a negative effect upon us. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Modern Christians sometimes apply the term generational curses to this reality. It is not that the new generation bears the responsibility for the sins of the previous one. Rather it is that often the new generation bears the consequential burden of the sins that had been committed by the previous generation. Bottom line, I do not accept, matter of fact, I outright reject that the story of the famine is told in 2 Samuel 21 explains that these seven descendants of Saul who had nothing to do with the crime provided a God-ordained blood payment to satisfy God's curse on the land on account of blood guilt committed by a previous generation of the family. Rather it is that eventually... God allowed rain to fall again in Israel because of His divine mercy. And timing-wise, we're told that it happened after Saul and his family was buried, not as a direct cause and effect of the executions or the burials. Look, there is not a nation of people on earth, including modern-day Israel, that do not live with blood guilt upon their land. We all do. 
If God didn't show us His marvelous mercy, if God didn't show incredible mercy to people who lived on land soaked in blood guilt, this entire planet would have no rain on it. I wouldn't have had any for thousands of years and mankind would have long ago been wiped out. That such mercy is given to us does not relieve us from the responsibility of doing what is right in God's eyes. At the same time, we can't go about inventing ways or or twisting biblical regulations to suit our fancies in order that we can clear our consciences, as David did in conjunction with the Amorites, and then assume that when the Lord shows us mercy, we've done right. We're going to finish this final chapter and move into chapter 22 next week.